This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm Flick Ford, broadcasting from my humble home studio and in the absence of Paul Anthony Nelson. And luckily, I'm no lone cowgirl because joining me in the virtual studio is the fastest gunslinger I know, Sally Christie. Hello, Howdy, Sally. It's nice. It's, I've been away for a few weeks. It's nice to be back. Yeah, welcome back. We're celebrating the epic movie genre. We'll swagger through saloon doors like the professional bounty hunters that we are in Sergio Leone's iconic spaghetti western, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly from 1966. Then we'll ride off into the sunset and somehow end up in the 15th century for David Michaud's 2019 Henry V biopic, The King. But before we assume control of England and assert our claim to the French throne, we've got two special guests to announce for our epic special. A very warm welcome to General Manager of IMAX Melbourne, Richard Morrison. Hello, Richard. Hello. Hello, listeners. <laughs> and the Senior Programmer for Village Entertainment, Christian Klukinus. Greetings and salutations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm really excited about tonight's spotlight. Pleasure. This should be fun. Yeah. Um, before we commence, I thought it might be helpful to provide a bit of an overview of how we're actually going to define the epic movie genre. Um, so epic is one of the longest running film genres and it was founded in the silent era. Uh, traditionally, epic films were a lot like epic novels, grand tales about extraordinary heroic figures and their courageous quests. They were usually historical tales about gladiators, knights or military leaders, films like Ben-Hur, Lawrence of Arabia and the Ten Commandments. And the term epic comes from the poetic genre and it's a reference to one of the earliest surviving great works of literature, literature the, the Epic of Gilgamesh. So over the years there's, there's been several reimaginings of the genre. We have the Italian epics of the silent era that we used to anchor national identity to a more traditional way of life. Then we had the sweeping panoramas that defined the American epics of the 50s and that had to like, compete with the growing popularity of television. Uh, Sci-fi and fantasy epics were a way to sort of showcase the potential of digital technology. They also signalled a really important shift away from historical epics to focus on sort of otherworldly past and imagined futures. But today the epic has really broadened to include a wide variety of films that capture the essence of the epic, which, you know, large-scale productions, complex storylines, and now often with an ensemble cast rather than one solitary figure. Uh, Ridley Scott's Sword and Sandals epic for the uh, Gladiator is often credited with rebooting the popularity of the genre in 2000, but there's so many other notable mentions, including um, the Lord of the Rings series, uh, Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, uh, Herzog's Agia, The Wrath of God, and my personal favourite, uh, Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. 
Uh, Richard, I know this is really tricky, but do you have a favourite epic film? Uh, well, it's a hard question to ask. I think I think um, certainly my uh, taste, I think everyone's taste just sort of kind of depends on a number of different um, things going on. Um, but certainly one of my favourites uh, is, uh, and of course coming from an IMAX background, so I'm pretty biased, would be Interstellar. Oh, so yeah. a lot of talk in the IMAX course with ever-changing of Tenet. Um, <laughs> Interstellar remains for me one of the um, must-experience in an IMAX cinema. So uh, it's, a couple, it's, my, it's, in, it's in my top five of all time in cinema experience, big screen films. Oh, absolutely. My my favourite up there would be Gravity. I remember seeing uh, Gravity at IMAX and I somehow, I kind of moved so much with the character that I ended up um, on the shoulder of the person next to me who did not know me. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't do it these days. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how about you, Christian? Do you have a favourite? Well, it just so happens that my favourite film ever is an epic and that's The Empire Strikes Back. Oh, yes. <laughs> I just think it's the most gorgeously made film. It's so operatic. Um, it looks amazing and it's got the best all-time score. Um, I could watch it forever. Yeah, I love that the I love how the genre has really changed to be able to include sci-fi and fantasy because there was this really kind of traditionally seeing it as, you know, these um, had to be based within um, the past. Um, but Star Wars, the whole Star Wars universe is um, kind of fits into the epic, um, the epic genre. Um, Sal, we've already got one of your faves on, but do you have another another epic fave? When you picked that this week was going to be epic, so I was kind of like, shit, I just, oh, you know, it, I'm not so familiar with them. It's not my, um, not my my sort of strong point. But my first one that I thought of would have been 2001. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is oh, what an that's just such a special experience to see that in the cinema. I watched it the Astor, I think last year, and we did cover it on um, Plato's Cave not so long ago. Hence, why I didn't pick it for this week. Um, but that is something truly, truly special. I think to see. So that's one of my absolute favorites. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, I was, um, the reason why I was so keen to kind of get, um, get you both on, uh, Richard and Christian was about two months ago, we had, uh, Zach Hepburn from Astor Theatre and Christian Connolly from Cinema Nova on to talk about the reopening of their cinemas. And I'm curious to know, um, you know, obviously the cinemas did reopen in late June, but then with this new outbreak of new cases of coronavirus here in Melbourne, um, they've once again closed. Um, what's your journey been with this sort of closing, reopening, closing once more, been like for IMAX and, and the Coburg drive-in? Um, Richard, would you, would you like to start? Uh, yeah, well, uh, I think we were open for 12 days, so so it was a very short uh, reopening yeah. journey. And obviously uh, we planned to reopen when the expectation was the um, capacity limitation would be shifted from 20 to 50. That didn't happen in the end. I held it at 20. We still opened anyway. Um, so it was, you know, obviously uh, like difficult with such a small number, um, but it was great to see, um, you know, we had a lot of sold-out sessions. Um, but it was great to see a lot of people return. And we, also we had uh, no new content, but it's funny we're talking about the, the epic genre. You know, a lot of the films that we decided to put on um, for the evenings were back catalogue classic you know, films that we thought um, looked great on the big screen, you know, things like um, 
uh, and would you believe would you believe film, which is which is one of my favourites for a fun film, was Pacific Rim, which in three D oh, yeah. on, on like the big screens is just a really good uh, popcorn uh, f- film. Um, Mad Max Fury Road, um, oh, which favorite. is fantastic in three D <laughs> yeah. as well. Um, you know, start, you know, the original Star Trek from two thousand and nine, or the re release of uh, that. So those types of films, you know, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, they just trans they just uh, translate really well onto the big mm-hmm. screen. Um, so you know, that part was good to have people back and enjoying it. Uh, I remember actually one of the first days I left out of the cinema and I bumped into a family who were waiting to come in to see Jurassic Park in 3D. Um, and they were super excited to be back at the cinema. Uh, and I remember thinking, you know, it's hard to be ultra motivated when there's 20 people limitations, but these people's family of four, you know, really, really made me leave on a high thinking this is what it's all about, you know, people coming here to enjoy cinema again. So that part was great. Oh, yes, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And and Christian, for you with um, the Copic drive-in, I know that um, you, you were open for a short amount of time during during that sort of reopening and closing again. Is that right? Well, look, Coburg's a unique um, beast because of the whole everybody being in their car mm-hmm. situation. Um, we managed to reopen early June um, before um, all our Victorian sites and it went gangbusters. Like we were playing Pulp Fiction, Dirty Dancing, um, and they were going nuts. They were selling out. You can fit a hell of a lot of cars in, in the biggest field and we had to turn people away. Um, but unfortunately with the um, uh, recent um, Melbourne uh, added restrictions, we've had to uh, close up shop once again. So, so we were open uh, for a good month. Um, but we look forward to coming back with a vengeance once restrictions uh, go away again. <laughs> Christian, um, just a question for you. I was reading an article today that I know one of my heroes, John Waters, has been hosting a whole lot of drive-in um, sessions over in the States. And he was saying that he feels like um, everything that's going on at the moment, there's going to be a big resurgence in the driving culture after this. What do you what do you think? I can I can see that happening because um I'm close to Coburg and you know was really aware of their I guess demand on uh, the Coburg drive and do you think that that's something that might possibly happen that we see the drive in come back to life again? Absolutely. I mean it's certainly been happening across the globe in light of restrictions because uh, the drive in uh, you are protected within your own car. But then the question is once all cinemas reopen, are we going to keep that fire burning? Sure. Or is it going to die down again because people are just going to go to their locals? Mm-hmm. But I like to think, like John Waters does, um, that it will spark a new excitement for the um, for the format. Mm. Um, so also, another side effect of the pandemic is that it's caused a considerable number of big blocks, big blockbuster epics to for the production to be stored on the, on those and um, also possibly ended production for countless other films. I'm curious, uh, Richard, about how you're able to program content in this kind of uncertain time. Like what films do you, what do you kind of see as the future of what you're going to be programming? Uh, it's a, it's a hard question to ask. I think um, with uh, or hard question to answer, sorry, with uh, so much um, still up in the air at the moment. I mean, certainly, yeah, production's been um, stifled in a lot of areas, but also the films are being delayed as well. So there'll be this backlog of, of, of current content that's ready to release. Now we're seeing those being delayed um, or actually going straight to um, to streaming on demand. Um, so I think, you know, at this stage, it's still probably too early to, to sort of say. I think there's obviously the hope is that uh, at the moment, um, everything will just slide back by a certain period of time. 
the question is how long is that period of time mm-hmm. to be determined yeah. to watch the space like this? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And is that similar for you, Christian, with the drive-in? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, like Richard, you know, our bread and butter would be the the, the mainstream um, re- new releases, um, uh, and I guess uh, we've been able to lean on um, uh, classic and cult favourites, you know, whilst there's been a drought of new releases. Mm. Um, but, yeah, as Richard said, uh, we, we don't really know uh, how long uh, it's going to take for the new films to start opening. Um, mm. And then when they do eventually reopen, how much of a gap is there going to be between us releasing all the delayed productions and then the delayed productions actually being finished and being able to be released? Mm. You hope that it just flows naturally and that there's not a a gap where we're going to find ourselves with a period of no new releases coming out because of all the delayed productions. Mm. But there is a hell of a lot of... Uh, delayed productions that are going to be big, though. So that should get us through quite a period of time. Oh, that's very encouraging. (laughs) Yeah. I think, and also one of the things that sort of astounded me is that despite the fact that there there might be changes with new new material coming through, there's such a... so much interest in even these retro titles and things like that, which says a lot about the particular kind of event cinema that places such as IMAX and the drive-in really offer. And I'm just kind of um, interested in what your insight would be on what do you think it is about the appeal of event cinema and maybe more broadly what the appeal of epic films are for audiences? Uh, Well, I mean... If, if you ask me, um, I always see um, cinema and movies as escapism, right? So you, so you go to escape and seeing it on the big screen in an environment outside of your house um, amongst a whole heap of strangers is more out of this world and more of an escape than watching something on your own TV. You know, it, it transports you to another world. It's it's an unparalleled experience. So... Uh, well, that's for me anyway. What, what, what do you reckon, Richard? Yeah, well, I'm I'm 100 behind you, Christian. I think uh, you know people are looking for spectacle and uh, and awe, and some of those you know back catalog that those back catalog content titles are just have to be seen on a big screen. I know you know we still last couple of years, IMAX has gone into playing um, uh, you know some some sort of back catalog and a lot of sci-fi types of films with like the space themes films really translate well onto a, um, a big screen. Um, and like I remember when we chose to play um, an Alien and Aliens double, which I personally I, I chose them because I wanted to see them on our screen um, <laughs> because I love those films, right? And um, you know I remember the first time we did it, we did two two like doubles, and they're both completely full houses. I mean, and, and and everyone's seen those films, but people hadn't necessarily seen them on a big screen. I sat in the theatre with some friends in a full house, and just the whole atmosphere of having being surrounded by that many people who all had seen the film all laughing at the lines, you know, all knowing the, you know, the parts that were coming up. Uh, you just can't replicate that uh, elsewhere. So, you know, that's, that's why, you know, I think cinema is generally pretty resilient. Um, and uh, it's what people, it's what, what is, you know, our hope, are, our hope is for the future is that people will, will still want that uh, when oh, things die down. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think 100%. that I've um, tried to invest, I've recently got a 
projector and I've got like a relatively okay sound system, but it's just not the same. <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to you you both reopening. I know well, that's one you. thing that I'm I'm really missing is going to the cinema. I think because obviously I, I went so frequently that that's yeah, I miss it a lot. I can't wait for cinemas to reopen. There's also something to be said about how films play on the big screen in an auditorium. Like I remember seeing Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the Astor. I'd seen that film countless times at home. But when I saw it at the Astor, I noticed shit that I didn't notice previously because people react and you don't get that reaction when you're at home. There's Mm. also, I've had a similar experience with Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the Astor, maybe the same session. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Just the way that the sound design works in that film and hearing that in a cinema is incredible. And we don't, we can have great sound systems at home, but we don't get that really immersive experience. Yeah, we can try to replicate it, but it doesn't happen. That's That's such a good point. Mm. Yeah, and so much does get lost. Interesting that you say that, Sally. I remember um, one of the first films we played uh, you know, under our rewind sort of strategy, these sort of back catalogue, was uh-huh. uh, um, before the, I'm not quite sure what year it was, that the MIG, you know, the Jason Statham yep. uh, film came out. Yep. We played Jaws, so the yep. original Jaws, um, and people who came to see that, what we actually heard, but the feedback about seeing that film was people commented about the sound. They had never yeah. seen the film in the cinema. They'd only seen it at home. So they couldn't believe the sound. Um, and the other part that I thought was interesting, you know, with this topic of um, the epic is we, I, you always sort of, ima- you know, imagine big settings, big screens, big sort of large landscapes. But one of the really powerful moments in that film, which I thought was was uh, exacerbated even more so on the big screen, was the the, the scene where they're all in the boat talking about the uh, shark um, yeah. shark wounds. And he starts talking about the sinking of the of the ship, and that was just like you could hear a pin drop. Everyone was so hundred percent focused into this, and that was a very tight, small, you know, dialogue driven scene. But it works so well on the big screen. Yep. Yeah. So this is an awful question to pose to you, but when do you think you will be able to reopen? Who knows? <laughs> That's a question for uh, Dan Andrews. I yeah. Yeah. Get him on here. Get him on here. Now. <laughs> I'll just give him a quick call. Yeah. Um, when all this shit calms down. Yeah. <laughs> when, when you do have the opportunity to reopen, what do you think you'll be programming? Uh, I know. Oh, Christian? Uh, well, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll keep, um, I mean, there's odd, there's, there's odd, um, new releases here and there, smaller scale ones that, you know, can afford to release without the support of uh, a national release. Um, but in the build up to the major releases like Tenet and, um, Mulan and, um, Wonder Woman 84, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep playing recent hits like Invisible Man and, and, and infuse a lot of, um, retro hits in there. And we'd also, it actually works really well in this epic um, genre discussion. Uh, we are um, planning on re- um, playing Gladiator for its 20th anniversary oh, um, across all our cinemas um, when they do eventually reopen. And how great would it be to see that epic on the big screen again? Yeah, oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's funny that you mentioned Gladiator. We had that booked for May, I think, which was uh, which was the uh, the uh, I think it was May. It was released back in two thousand. Uh, we bought, yeah. had it booked before we were, before we were closed for the, for the exact same reason. The twenty third anniversary sweeping. So we've had like three different release dates, and we've just had to keep changing it and changing it because of everything that's going on. So I feel you, Richard. Mm. Oh. It is um, the nature of things. What um? What about you, Richard? For- well, we, we, you know, I'm I'm trying to be sort of quite positive that we'll be able to open, uh, you know, in September and, and seasonally we've done um, our own sort of version of a 
of a space-themed uh, film festival, which we call Space Timber. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, uh, because there's just such a great catalogue of films that, that, that translate well onto the big screen, and what, like one of the ones that you mentioned, 2001 A Space Study, which looks sensational, mm. um, uh, you know, that's Interstellar, Alien, Aliens, all those types of films, The Martian, Gravity, um, they just hold up well. We just can keep playing them every year, and we know there's a market for it. So, you know, if there is no new content, which, um, you know, it's looking – Look, you know, that, that, that may well be the case. We do have something at least for a, a little while. Hey, Richard, um, can I ask? Oh, sorry. Is, no, can no, I ask no, a question? Um, I noticed you mentioned that you're doing a lot of 3D um, screenings. Um, so when you do um, re-release these films, would your preference be to screen them in 3D where available? Uh, yes, basically. If they are, they are available in 3D, we, we, we're still, a, despite the fact that, you know, mainstream, it's not really a thing anymore. Uh, we certainly have, um, for most films, depends on the content of the film, uh, for, but for most films there's still a strong demand, uh, believe it or not, to see it in 3D. So Gravity, those types of films that lend themselves well. You know, Mad Max Fury Road was, was sensational in 3D. Some of the space scene ones are amazing. Um, you know, other, but other films, so perhaps more higher brow for IMAX, like Blade Runner 2049 was available in both formats, but there was a preference for, to see that in 2D. So it just depends yeah. on the market, but generally... 3D is, uh, is, is, is a film choice we choose. Richard, you mentioned before that you programmed um, Alien and Aliens because you wanted to see it on, at IMAX. Do For both of you, do you often program because you want to see something? Because I know I would do that all the yes. time. I'd be like, <laughs> I just want to see this, so I'm going to program it. Yes is the answer. Yep, yeah. That's, um, that's so similar to how we, like, choose films each week. <laughs> like, <I'm> like, <laughs> I'm afraid that if I programmed that way, no one would come to see the films. <laughs> That's how I feel. If, I, if it was just me picking the films on this show, no one would. Yeah. I just play freaky shit no one's heard of. Yeah, Sally would just have to put up with all my intense European cinema. <laughs> it's actually quite a lot of fun with, you know, the team get really involved. It's like a, you know, there's a lot of robust discussions in the office yeah. about, you know, what would work and what wouldn't and what we should play. So it's fun. It's a lot of, like, quite a lot of fun. Yeah, it seems that. Look, if you've just tuned in, we've been chatting with the General Manager of IMAX Melbourne, Richard Morrison, and Senior Programmer for Village Entertainment, Christian Klukinis. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie and myself, Flick Ford. We've got Senior Programmer for Village Entertainment, Christian Luke Innes and General Manager of IMAX Melbourne, Richard Morrison, joining us in the virtual studio for our special spotlight on the epic film genre. Yeah, you're right. It's getting tougher. The way I figure, there's really not too much future with a sawed-off front like you. That was, of course, a clip from Sergio Leone's classic film, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Released in 1966, the film tells the story of three gunslingers, lone cowboy Blondie, ruthless hitman Angel Eyes and Mexican bandit Tuco, all looking for fortune in the dusty and unforgiving American Southwest against a backdrop of civil war between the Confederacy and the Union. Leone's film is often referred to as the definitive spaghetti western and it's best known for its long shots of the American landscape and the use of extreme close-ups, particularly in that iconic shootout scene. The film was initially criticised for its depiction of violence with a review of the New York Times saying, it must be the most expensive, pious and repellent movie in the history of its particular genre. But today it's revered as one of the greatest movies of the last century and is a foundational inclusion in the canon of great cinema. 
Christian, what do you think is the secret behind the lasting legacy of the good, the bad and the ugly? Uh, Well, two things. One, Sergio Leone's uh, visceral and unmatched directorial eye. And two, one of the greatest film scores ever recorded, R.I.P. Ennio Morricone, who passed Mm. recently. Um, But, yeah, that score is one of the best. Um, And, yeah, and look, it's it's just a a, a rockin' epic. Like it's... (laughs) It's not a dry sort of, uh, you know, dense um, epic because it's, it's Leone's visceral style gives it this energy and the violence is so full on for its time that you're like, what the hell kind of epic is this? And it's the Spaghetti Western and it is the Spaghetti Western. Um, and the three characters um, work so beautifully together. Um well, yeah, that's my two cents anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, Sally, this was your pick, so I feel like you're you're yeah. going for this. This was my pick, and like I said before, Flick, I was a little, I felt a little out of my um, element when you said that we were doing epics this week. And then I was thinking, oh, you know, what epics do I love? And um, this really stuck out for me because I think this film is a masterpiece in every sense of the word. So that we've got the, the cinematography, the score, the performances, the locations where it's shot. It is just absolutely superb. And it's such a beautiful blend of, I guess, violence and comedy. The comedy in this I really love. I find it really funny. Um, Mickey Knox, who did the dubbing in this film, I was watching him talk about how it was important to kind of translate that comedy for an American audience when not everybody when they were filming, when they were making The Good, The Bad, The Ugly actually spoke English. So how he was trying to, I guess, um, you know, make sure the jokes landed for a Western audience. Um, One story that I really enjoyed that he told was there's that one scene where they're in uh, their camp and the band is playing and we see one of the guards saying more feeling to him and he's getting quite upset. Um, he yes. was a Mickey Knox who did the dubbing said that he was saying poor forte in and he couldn't think of something in English to dub it with he, because it, the intention was to say louder. So he said he worked on it all morning for like six hours. He worked on just these two words that he had to dub to make it look like it was in English and eventually he went and took a lunch break and he came up with more feeling and that's why. <laughs> I love that bit as well. That's so I know, wonderful. I know. Yeah, he said he was just all morning trying to figure out a way to put make louder fit into this um these syllables that didn't work. But yeah, so how it's you know there's so much that has gone into this. When you the Mickey Knox stuff is really interesting how the dubbing has worked and just all that sort of I guess excess that's gone into it. But it is it's an absolute masterpiece. This film, I love how. It plays with everybody's morals. We've got Clint Eastwood, who's Blondie, who is the good, who's not that good. Um, you know, he's not they good all... at all. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a couple of bits where you go, oh, that's kind of nice. But then when um, Tuco's chasing after him, it's like, he really deserves this. Like, he was an asshole to him. So, you know. I've heard it, I've heard it um, read as a love story between Tuco and Blondie, Have which you? I quite like. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I just, I, you know what? I have never seen this on the big screen. 
Me never, neither. Never. I was re-watching it over the weekend and going, God, I can't believe I've never seen this on the big screen. Um, I know Carl, who panels our show, has, I think, a few times. And I may, I imagine it would be incredible. So when you I tried to get, get your retro programming happening. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to recreate it on my, my projector screen and my cat was absolutely enthralled by it. So um, I, I saw your Instagram stories flick and I was <laughs> loving them. He thinks he's a cowboy. <laughs> um, Richard, I'm sure you've seen this film a few times. What was, um, what was it like revisiting it? Are you asking me that because I'm old? No. Because <laughs> you're a film expert. Come on. You know what? I, I, embarrassing enough, when I watched it, I was thinking, I can't remember much of this at all, and I'm pretty certain I might have seen it once before, and that would have been at least 25 years ago. Yeah. So um, it was, and I was certainly quite shocked by the runtime. I mean, epic. It's certainly epic in its length. Yep. I think these films were designed, obviously, with intermission in mind. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like like Christian, it's a fantastic, just the, the, the uh, soundtrack, the, the mixing, the sound is just sensational. I, I thought I thought it was, you know, I, I enjoyed it. It was it was long. It's, it's uh, you can see, you can see it's, it's like a big screen spectacle film. It would be great on a big mm. screen. Um, and I thought, yeah, it's funny you say about the uh, the love story, because I thought this is turning into a buddy movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, so, no, great, great fun. Yeah, absolutely. It I, it's, oh, sorry, Sal, you go. I was going to say it's interesting, Richard, that you say it is designed for intermission, that we think of things that, you know, are designed for the cinema um, and it definitely would have had an intermission. Yeah, sure. so true. Yeah. I've been creating a little intermission at my home cinema, <laughs> usually like a little popcorn break. <laughs> it was so much fun uh, researching this film this week. Um, I kind of looked into some of the film production um aspects of it and it's one of those films where it's almost the making of it sounds just as wild as it, the film itself. It sounds crazy because yeah. it wasn't it when they blew that bridge up that they ended up blowing it up something like three times and it yep. smashed actual cameras well, and one one of the explosions that they did was set off before there was even a camera on it and so that guy got fired. <laughs> um also there's a bit of you can even see this in the film but there's a bit of um flying debris that almost uh decapitates Eastwood. Um and <laughs> And, um, yeah, there's so many, like, safety really was not something that was a priority. Um, <laughs> Wallach, who plays Tuco, he was also nearly decapitated. There's a scene, the famous scene of where he's trying to sever the chain with the train. Yes. They didn't take into fact that there's, of course, a stepping platform for passengers to get on the plane. So that almost um, took off his head. And um, there's also a crazy incident where there was acid in a soda bottle um, that he accidentally drank out of, but he spat it, spat it out. Why? Before well, Sorry, why the hell that? was there acid in the soda <laughs> I bottle? I don't know. <laughs> it's funny. When I was researching this, they don't explain that part, which I think is the bigger question. But um, <laughs> they do talk about that. And also, um, obviously, the the duo have this fantastic little scheme to um, make more money out of people by having um, Tuco uh, attached to the horse, about to be hung, and then the horse bolts. But um, when the horse did bolt, um, he actually, uh, I think, it was when there was a gunshot and the horse got spooked but he was all tied up and the horse galloped away and he almost um he didn't fall I mean he eventually was able to to um get off safely but um the horse ran like a mile so he almost died then as well so I think he's the actor that probably went through the went through the the most uh, awful experience by the sounds Talk of about it. the wild west I yeah know. i saw as well one thing that I, I really like about the production of this film is that clint eastwood did most of his own wardrobe design for it because they he didn't want to they he only had one hat 
one there wasn't multiple so if he lost his hat that was it it was gone so he would just bring his own clothes and then take them back with him at night so nothing would happen to them so they were yeah all of his clothes that he bought from America with oh that's wonderful apparently um there's a I mean this isn't a spoiler but there's a skeleton in a coffin at the very end and um apparently that's a real skeleton oh really like in poltergeist Yeah. yeah so the um there's a woman who um the set designer found that there was this woman in Madrid whose um, mother had passed away and she'd put in her will that she wanted to continue acting after her death. So they found a way around that. I want to start wow. acting after my death in my yeah. will. <laughs> <laughs> start popping up in movies. <laughs> I don't know how they worked that out. I did love how uh, I think Tuco, who's my favourite character in this film, yeah. uh, by some major, he had the best line uh, when he's in the, the bathtub scene. Where he says, and it's still still a line that all movies now need to need to take heed because it's still the same. Is that what did he say? If you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I think that Tuco steals the show. Yeah. He really he he steals the show for me. He probably gets more screen time yep. than Quint. Yep. I think he does. Yeah, yeah. He definitely gets more lines. Yep. And isn't it funny that he's like the most disgusting character, yet <laughs> unanimously he's the most beloved? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> There is so something true. lovable about him, for sure. Also, how wonderful is it and how iconic is it how they introduce the characters with that kind of, like, freeze frame? I just there's so There's so much stylistic, um, yeah. you know, just things that have become now so so integral to what cinema means for us. I, I This is an absolute joy to watch. And, you know, it's a long running time, but you just don't feel it. It's no. fun. I'm always the biggest complainer about long run times when I pick this film. So <laughs> it's it's a fun it's a fun watch. Yep. Well, if you want to check it out, The Good, The Bad and the Ugly is currently streaming on Stan and it's also available to rent or buy on iTunes, Google Google Play, and also YouTube. You're listening to Primal Screen on 3 Triple R. Triple R listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie and myself, Flick Ford. We're celebrating the epic film genre and to help us with these cinematic festivities, we're joined by Richard Morrison, General Manager of IMAX Melbourne, and Christian Kluekinus, sorry, I'm just like completely (laughs) Kluekinus, the Senior Programmer for Village Entertainment. I made a joke off air that I would... uh, some at some point ruin that and I, I have. But now it's time for our second epic of the night. So take off your spurs and cowboy hat, but keep your horse and gun as we charge into the 15th century in a very heavy suit of armor. You expected me a speech. I have only one to give. And it is the same one I'd give were we not standing on the brim of a battlefield. It is the same one I'd give. Were we to meet in the street by chance? I've only ever hoped for one thing! To see this kingdom united under this English crown! That stirring speech is of course delivered by beautiful angel and cinema's darling, Timothée Chalamet, who plays Hal, a spirited and defiant prince living outside the palace walls. But when his tyrannical father, played with perfect acidity by Ben Mendelsohn, dies... Hal is forced to accept the throne and with great reluctance becomes Henry V. Now, this is a fourth feature film from Aussie director David Michaud, who made the feature-length directorial debut in 2010 with the hard-hitting crime drama Animal Kingdom. 
The King is a very loose adaptation of Shakespeare's, uh, Shakespeare's Henriad plays, and while it's based on a real-life historical figure, Michelle does, does take considerable artistic liberties with the truth. Or, to borrow a headline from Esquire magazine, the king might not be totally historically accurate, but Timothée Chalamet's Volcut sure as hell is. Richard, (laughs) were you roused by Hal's speech or left floundering in the mud? Uh, Well, you know what? The speech was impressive. I mean, he's a very unkingly king from an aesthetic point of view. Uh, But, um, yeah, look, it's funny. I watched this film last year when it came out on Netflix and I watched it again last night because I couldn't remember much about it. So I'm not quite sure. I'm quite sure what that says, but I actually enjoyed it <laughs> second time round. Um, oh, it must have paid more attention, but certainly a, a film of lies, treachery, deceit, and ego that sums about that sums all the males in the in the film anyway. But enjoyable. <laughs> I should clarify that usually when we're picking films, we kind of will pick one that's like our favourite. I hadn't seen this film when I picked it. I just wanted sort of a more modern epic. Um, Christian, what what did you make of it? Damn, that Timothy Chalamet can wear the (laughs) shit out of a medieval costume. (laughs) Like every outfit change is like a new Burberry ad. Um, Sometimes I'm like, is he wearing a hoodie? No, that's just the way the outfit falls on him. Like I don't know what it is about him. He's magic. Um, I agree. In terms of the film, uh, look, it's like a a decent, really long Game of Thrones episode. Um, it's uh, beautifully produced, um, but uh, there was something about it that just wasn't uh, firing on all cylinders for me. It was a bit bit dry for me, but overall, it was enjoyable enough. Uh, that sounds a bit harsh. It's I a can't good imagine film. The- I can't imagine the poster being enjoyable enough. Enough. Joel Edgerton does a killer uh, Russell Crowe impersonation. Yes, um, good call. His character was probably the one I sympathise with the most. Um, and, yeah, that Chalamet speech was rousing as hell. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hadn't seen this before. I've, obviously I was aware when it was released, but I had never gotten around to seeing it. Um I didn't love it. I didn't feel that it had kind of bought anything. I felt it felt like a movie I had seen before. It felt like a movie I've seen a few times before. Um, Having said that, Robert Pattinson appearing midway through the movie, he was the saving grace for me. Isn't he always? Yeah, he's just incredible. He's incredible. Um, I saw that people were paying out on his French accent. I thought terrible. he was fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, he, he, he sold the movie for me. But, um, yeah, there was the battle scene looked really, really incredible. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I didn't love it. I didn't even realise that this was a David Michaud film until mm. um, you picked it, Flick. I didn't realise yeah, that he had made this film. It's and so... that you and Joel Edgerton had written it together. Yeah, it was Edgerton's um, idea, actually. Yeah, uh-huh. I, um, I um, look, I picked it for a few reasons. I mean, it has got a lot of my faves in there, uh, Chalamet, Arpat, Edgerton, Mendelssohn, Sean Harris, who's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and although she's only on screen for a little moment, um, the wonderful Thomasine McKenzie. Yeah, and- I was disappointed that she wasn't in this more because yeah. she's fantastic. She's so engaging on screen. And there's yep. also a very well cast uh, Lily Rose Depp who, 
think was dating uh, Chalamet at the time. Okay. I've got, can yeah. I just say something about Lily Rose Depp who doesn't speak French, uh, doesn't speak English, this is what she says in the film, and then goes on to continue the rest of her dialogue in English. That was a power play, Sal. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> oh, <really>? I was <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> Come on. I was, like, I, I was zoned out by then. The, did the good, the bad and the ugly teach you nothing? You got it. It's all about double-crossing. I know. The I, they were both um, very double-crossing movies that we <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think another reason, I was thinking, like, why why I wanted to include this. I hadn't seen it, but I I think that, like, also that idea of it kind of, in some ways is is fits in with this traditional idea of the epic. It has all those kind of markers, like it's grounded in history, it's Shakespearean and it focuses on this like central figure and there's this epic battle, but it has a bit of a modern twist. So I don't feel like war is glorified in this film. No, not at all. And and there's there's a greater emphasis placed on the like emotional and psychological interiority of of Hal. Um, It's violent, but the violence isn't celebrated. It's kind of endured. And I think that this is possibly best accompanied by this really masterful original score by Nicholas Brattel. He also composed the score for uh, Barry Jenkins' If Bill Bill Street Could Talk and also Moonlight. Um, And I think it it really grounds this epic in a sobering sort of reality of warfare and also the systems of power that uh, like corrupt and derail these efforts of like peace and unity. Um, My friend Pia described Chalamet as the icon of new masculinity and I think that's uh, where some of the strength of this film lies in kind of uncovering a much more vulnerable and emotive masculinity on screen. And I think because it emphasises the futility of war and, and human cost, it's, that's probably where the power of this film lies. And, and Chalamet is so well cast. He's got this kind of perfect combination of youthfulness and world-weary, world-weariness. And, look, I don't think he's, it's not the my, my most favourite film of the year and it's not going to stick out perhaps in um, maybe in a second viewing. But there was something about this film and perhaps because I'd heard such negative reviews, I actually liked it a lot more than I was thinking. And I wonder if it's because not only is it like a, I suppose it's just like the the emotion behind it. I thought that it was really well communicated. And I, I suppose like I am a massive Michelle fan. So I think that I like the way that he often interrogates like violent and unforgiving men, like Animal Kingdom's a perfect example. But in The King, he's kind of examining toxic masculinity, but doing it in this kind of really detailed and, and complex. It's, it's really setting. interesting thinking of it that way with if we're looking at masculinity with the two films that we're looking at tonight, because they're both such masculine films and the masculinity that's portrayed in both of these films, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly and The King, is so such worlds apart. So, yeah, it is mm. interesting to kind of think about this, I guess, new masculinity that's coming through in with The King compared to, say, Clint Eastwood as Blondie in The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Yeah, and Love to see Chalamet take Eastwood on. <laughs> <laughs> Who would win? Who would win? <laughs> well, I mean, Chalamet how, now. Um. <laughs> how good a fighter is, as well is Hal. I loved the fight scenes in this. I, I mean, know, I know, it's I, unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> it's surprisingly gritty. I kind of liked those little bursts of um, very real violence and the yeah, muddiness I, of it all. I liked the fight, that initial fight scene at the beginning of the film. I thought it was great. And I thought, mm. you know, that kind of who we don't know who's who because of the armor and stuff like that I thought it was excellent yeah I mean I th- it's one of those 
things where I was thinking a lot about epic movie, uh, the epic movie genre in general, and there's definitely certain actors or certain body types that have really dominated that scene. Yes. And, of course, it, it has been really overrepresented with, like, male characters, but I think you can kind of explore that and interrogate those ideas through epics in a mm. um, different way. And I think this film at least starts to do that. So I, I don't know. I, I was kind of on board with it. And maybe I was just swept up in the beautiful there was, soundtrack. There was lots of good stuff about it. There was. There was lots of enjoyable moments in it. But, um, yeah, it just it didn't feel like it was anything that I hadn't seen before. Mm. I don't think it felt yeah. epic either. I don't know if it should be everyone else, but where is I could watch the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I could see that transferring really, really well to the big screen. It's not how I felt about mm. the king. Hundred percent agree. Full screen film. I wonder if it's something to do with it being a Netflix production, um, because I felt the same about. This is going to sound controversial, but I felt the same about The Irishman. In that, like, compared to something like Wolf of Wall Street or Goodfellas, it didn't have that sort of cinematic look to it. And what is it about it? Like, yeah, it's what kind of cameras do Netflix productions use? Yeah, I I remember watching um, Annihilation and that going, oh, gee, I would love to see this on the big screen. Mm. Um, But then that was made for the big screen, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was retrofitted to Netflix afterwards. Yeah, all right, that makes sense. But yeah, great, Annihilation, mind blowing. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> well, Paul's not here to defend the Irishman, but I did see it at the cinema and I really disliked it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm taking this opportunity as a fill-in host to have a little extra stab. I'm glad it. to hear a hater for a change. I mean, I, I think it's a good I film, but it's not one of his best. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Look, if you want to check out The King, uh, it's now streaming exclusively on Netflix. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts, and via the app. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie and myself, Flick Ford. A very big thank you to our special guests, Senior Programmer for Village Entertainment, Christian Klukinas, and General Manager of IMAX, Melbourne, Richard Morrison. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having us. It's been a blast. Yep, same. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Um, lots of hot tips on what we should be checking out when you guys finally open up again. <laughs> We swaggered back into Sergio Leone's Leone's Western epic, The Good, the Bad and the Ugly, now streaming on Stan and available to rent or buy on iTunes, Google Play and YouTube. Then we got Exceptionally Muddy with Pretty Boy and Trendy Bold Cut enthusiast Timothy Chalamet in in The King, which is streaming exclusively to Netflix. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. Next week, we've got an exceptionally sparkly lineup for you. Special (laughs) guest Dr. Stuart Richards will be joining Sally and I for the Glitter Trilogy. So get your feather boas out and bedazzle your jacket in sequins as we dance our way through the adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Muriel's Wedding and Strictly Ballroom. And a special thanks to the wonderful Carl Chapman for panelling the show. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 